Hello and welcome to our May Publications podcast. I'm Ed Vital from the University of Leeds and Chair of the Lupus Forum. And during this podcast, I'm going to review the recent Lupus data and what it might mean for our clinical practice. Today, we've got four papers to share with you. And the first of those is actually a review article. This is a review article on the challenges of gaining FDA approval for CLE-specific treatments in the context of the phase two litofilumab studies in CLE and SLE. So this is quite an interesting trial program because as we know, we have we develop, we've mostly developed drugs for SLE, but there are quite a lot of patients who have cutaneous lupus without systemic features. And probably a lot of these drugs would work for them too. They're just not licensed and proven in those contexts. So what um, Biogen tried to do when they were designing their program was put together a, a sort of set of trials that would cover both of these bases, CLE patients and SLE patients and SLE patients with skin disease, some of them, or SLE patients with other problems like arthritis. <laughs> so that makes it, it's a relatively complex set of trials that takes a little bit of time to navigate through. But fortunately, um, one of our steering committee, um, Professor Victoria Worth, is an expert on cutaneous lupus and was also the chief investigator on some of these trials. So I went to her and asked her if she could give us her thoughts on this. So the little filamab trial, um, trials, I should say, um, is really interesting because it's really the first time that there were was a part A and a part B with part A being for SLE and part B being for cutaneous lupus. And I think this is a really interesting and important model because who gets recruited and the outcomes that are uh, used will be quite different for an SLE trial than a CLE trial. And this drug, as you likely know, has effects on plasmacytoid dendritic cells. And the way it works um, basically is you get internalization of the BDCA2 receptor uh, on the plasmacytoid dendritic cell when the drug binds to this receptor. And as a result, uh, we see a downregulation of both FC-dependent and FC-independent actions uh, with decreased pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines. And in particular, pro-inflammatory cytokines that are decreased include IL-6, TNF-alpha, type 1 interference, and type 3 interference. So this is a very um, interesting mechanism, a very targeted mechanism. And I think what's really interesting is that the way that the development pathway was started was with a phase zero trial, where essentially one could see the effect of only one injection uh, uh, subcutaneously in terms of the type one interferon expressed uh, proteins in the skin, in particular mix A. And the effects were very quick. So there was a uh, demonstration of really a very good um, mechanism of action and also efficacy in many of the small number of patients that were looked at in the phase zero trial. So in the part A trial, which is an SLE trial, only a subset of patients had sufficient skin disease to be able to be really evaluated. And so if, if one did that, there was clearly a decrease in the skin activity is measured by the classy activity with um, at least a seven point drop uh, in the patients who were treated uh, in 56% of participants uh, who got the drug versus 34% in the placebo group. And so this is a 
a, a rather substantial difference, but again, not really power to be able to statistically show that difference. In Part B, uh, there were more doses that were examined, uh, and it was possible to look at the doses, three doses relative to placebo. And it was very clearly demonstrated in a statistically significant manner that there was a decrease in the classy activity in all three doses relative to placebo. And the differences were very marked. The placebo response uh, in skin uh, was only about 14.5%, and it was more like between 39 and 48% uh, in the three treatment arms over the course of 16 weeks. And so again, rather rapid uh, improvement right uh, initially in the first two to four weeks. And what's also remarkable is that the um, placebo response is quite low, and that probably reflects the fact that you don't need as much background meds uh, in this population, and so you don't see as much of a uh, placebo response. So overall, um, I think that this data um, is very encouraging and would make one uh, really look forward to seeing uh, the results of a larger phase three trial. I will also mention that uh, the endpoint with the CLASI worked extremely well, and we know that what's an important difference uh, in the CLASI A from a patient perspective, and that the quality of life uh, is quite uh, improved when you see the kinds of changes that were seen uh, in the Part B, the skin part of the trial. The other take-home message is that separation of SLE and CLE trials, but using uh, the same drug can be very powerful, again, because one can use a targeted endpoint for the organs that you're trying to measure. So overall, I think I'm, I'm quite enthusiastic about um, the potential efficacy of this approach, and we'll see. Stay tuned. Okay, so there you have it, a, re a review that tries to put together all the lipofilumab studies. Um, they're in phase three at the moment, so we're all going to be looking out for the results of that. Um, I mean, my additional thoughts, I think one is that exactly how lifilumab works is becoming a more and more interesting question. Does it deplete PDCs and stop them producing interferon? Does it target PDCs and stop them doing something else? Or in fact, as some people think, and I think, is that these markers, may, these drugs may even affect other cell types that are important in cutaneous lupus, like myeloid cells and macrophages. And then the other thing I think about in terms of how this goes forward, you know, when we've got these drugs in phase three, obviously, you just want to look out for the for the phase three outcome and find out whether this drug is going to make it into the clinic or not. But ahead of that time, I'm always thinking about well, who are going to be the patients with the unmet need by that time? We've just had anaphrolumab licensed. It looks pretty good for skin. We've got valimumab as well. Who are going to be the people where those drugs aren't suitable and this and this would be better? Or so that's that's always what I'm thinking about. So on to the next paper now. Um, so this is a, stu a study that attempts an indirect comparison of valimumab and anaphrolumab. So interesting here, you may remember that last year we reviewed another study that tried to do this. This was a paper by Ian Bruce and colleagues um, that, tr that tried to compare these drugs. And they, so this is a second attempt at a similar question. So the issue is you've got belimumab with a set of trials that show it's better than placebo. We've got anaphrolumab with a set of trials that show it's better than placebo. 
is one of those two drugs better than the other or is one of them better for certain types of patients and we don't have a head-to-head trial to tell us so when you don't have a head-to-head trial to what can you try can you try and compare the individual trials you've got now that is obviously very problematic because certain people will go into one trial and not into another they've done at different times there might be some differences in design there could be all sorts of other differences in the aspect in the way the trial was done what standard of care was used how the outcomes were measured all of these things so um there are a set of methods that try and solve this problem by doing what they call indirect treatment comparisons where you take the data from the two trials you can't just say oh the sri4 rate on the trial was this and on the other trial it was that that's not going to work but what you can try and do is uh, see if you can account for the differences between the trials to to get a better estimate so this is the brosetal paper did this thing called a population adjusted um it, treatment comparison and they concluded that actually they thought the anafolumab treatment effects were better than bulimumab so here, this is a different methodological approach to essentially similar trial data, not exactly the same, but similar trial data. Um, and they've tried to do a comparison in a different way. And they make a few interesting points, if you read the paper properly, um, that uh, they, 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 have, they think there are some limitations to the previous analysis. Um, so you have to be, able, to be able to make one trial more comparable to the other you have to kind of know what the main differences are and know how they affect the outcome so that you can adjust for them so for example if you had a higher sleep eye in one trial than in the other and you thought that was associated with the better response then you try and make an adjustment when you compared those two trials um and they that is that is clearly potentially fraught with a lot of problems and you can see some of those problems that existed like for example there are some differences between two different trials of anifrolumab or two different trials of bulimumab that themselves are not explained by the these modifiers these these effect modifiers so there are certainly things going on in these different data sets of all these different trials that we we can't account for we can't measure and we don't understand so you have to any comparison is going to be a bit limited um so they got a different result when they tried to emulate the previous analysis published by Bruce et al um that they couldn't explain they they thought that it could be explained if maybe some of these effect modifiers so effect modifiers are things like higher sleep diet more steroids um ethnicity of the patients um things like that they thought that what if some of those measures had one effect in one direction on one of the drugs an opposite direction on one of the other drugs could that occur and account for the differences well they actually discount that possibility but i'm not sure i'd be so hasty i think it's possible um they also used some other statistical methods that are quite complex that they use something called multi-level network meta-regression um, that they thought made better use of the data and in the end their conclusion was that um they couldn't really find a difference between the two drugs so what does this tell us and what do I think so I think such comparisons of this are really too difficult to make any conclusion at all about we can measure something in one trial and say oh that trial had a higher sleep eye than that trial so let's put in an adjustment for that but what about all the things you can't measure 
Um, so, for example, outcomes in lupus patients, we recently found in some of the work in my group, where we were looking at clinical outcome measures and biomarkers and things, trying to predict um, the patient's quality of life. And we found that our, our sort of model didn't really work very well. And then we had a clever plan that actually maybe it was something to do with socioeconomic status, and we were able to adjust for that and also for the other medical conditions they had. And when you did that, suddenly the model became more meaningful. So they, if you think about a lupus patient and when they get a good outcome or not, it's not just about their Slidae score uh, and the treatment they're taking. They've got a whole life and there's all these things going on that affect that, um, that are important to them. And so when you think, so belimumab trials done 2011, anafolimab trials done 10 years later, What's changed in that time? Well, belimumab was licensed, of course. So there was another biological on the market. We learned more things about using less steroids. Maybe there's some demographic changes in the countries. Um, maybe different sites took part. So, you know, there's that saying that you can't step into the same river twice. And I think that applies to clinical trials. Um, so there might be all sorts of stuff that you don't know between these trials. And I think these comparisons are difficult. In terms of clinical practice now, we still don't have an answer to our question of like, the next patient I see, should I choose belimumab or anaphrolimab? And does it depend on a specific reason? I don't think we have a clear answer to that. We've got some hunches that maybe if they've got predominantly skin disease, you might think about anaphrolimab. What about if they failed a lot of the B-cell therapies before? What about on their ethnicity? There may be some things like that, but I think we're, we're learning as we go. Okay, so our next paper was one from the SLIC cohort. So obviously the SLIC cohort um, is something we cover quite often. It's this um, uh, prospective cohort of patients who are taken from either at diagnosis or very close to when their diagnosis occurred. And, and what that lets you do is look at what determines which patients are going to get which outcomes. So this was quite a nice analysis that was based on antibodies. So what they did was they took 805 patients and they took um, their serum and did quite detailed antibody testing. Um, so they did 29 ANA and monofluorescence patterns and 20 different water antibodies. And then what they did was use uh, kind of machine learning methods on the antibody data. So in other words, just trying to say what sort of groups exist here of all these different antibodies. So they made clusters. And then they just looked at those four clusters to see um, how things turned out long term. And they got four different clusters. First one is this group of patients who had a higher level of anti-Smith and anti-U1 RMP antibodies. So those, those antibodies are typically associated with quite severe immunology, at least. And in line with that, 10 years later, those group of people had highest damage, highest disease activity, more immunosuppressant and biologic use. The second cluster was a milder one. So this had a low frequency of anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies and a high frequency of these antibodies called DFS-70, diffuse fine speckled 70. So those are antibodies that we think are often found in people with false positive ANAs. So it's kind of a low risk antibody. And the 10 year data, it was again, consistent with that, so they had low disease activity, low likelihood of nephritis. Then you've got cluster three that's got a lot of, of antiphospholipid antibodies in it. Um, so, uh, and those patients also had, at 10 years, they had some 
interesting lupus features. They were also they more likely to have seizures, more likely to have low complement. And then cluster four was another quite severe group. So this is a group of patients who just had a large number of different antibodies. So quite a broad spectrum, histone, DNA, ribosomal P, uh, Rho, La, um, PCNA. So they had a, a, a large number of different antibodies and they also got high disease activity. So what this is all about really is alerting you to the fact that when patients are diagnosed with lupus, sometimes on the day of the diagnosis, they're not that severe yet but they are going in a severe direction. Um, so you can spot people when you know this is potentially going to be bad. Uh, they might be all right now, but future there may be more problems. And you need to recognize that to be able to either at least monitor them more closely and probably treat them a bit more aggressively from the start. And this is just one of the ways that you can do that. So our last paper um, is one about ACR quality measures. So this is interesting because when I read this one, I thought, well, this is a bit unusual because I'm going to tell you something that's different to what I normally say. Because normally, whenever I talk about lupus evidence and how to treat patients, I'm always saying things like, well, you need to take everybody as an individual and you look at exactly what's wrong with them and try and tailor what you're doing to their specific requirements. This is kind of the opposite philosophy. What if you were treating lupus like public health? What if you were saying, out of everybody with lupus, everybody in a country who had lupus, what should they all get? Like what 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 interventions, if you could do it to every single person who's got lupus at a kind of public health level, and you might monitor that on some electronic health record that covered a whole hospital or a whole region, um, then what should that be? So that's what these uh, ACR quality measures are for. So they're, they're defined quality measures. They're, they're, they're meant to be things that you could extract from electronic health records to develop the measure in the first place and also how you would use them and implement them. So there's quite a, it's very, it's very nicely laid out how they did it in the paper um, of how they did this. They, they start, they, 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 they analyzed the different treatment guidelines that were out there. They developed some potentially potential quality measures. They started with 57 of them. They narrowed it down to 15. And then they had a Delphi process where they tried to agree on the ones that were important and feasible. Because there were some things in there, like, for example, what induction regime you get for lupus nephritis is clearly important, but they also found it quite difficult to extract from, from the data at a population level. Um, so they ended up with um, five most important measures and three that they really recommended to be implemented. So those three measures were one, if a patient's got SLE, then they should have a prescription for hydroxychloroquine on or after the date of the most recent rheumatology visit, unless there's a contraindication or adverse event. In other words, give everyone hydroxychloroquine if you can. Number two was that the glucocorticoid dose should not exceed more than 7.5 milligrams of prednisone or equivalent for more than seven, six months. And number three was that patients who've got SLA should have their kidney function and their protein excretion measured at least every six months. So they may sound like relatively simple statements, but the philosophy here is that very simple things that are implemented thoroughly and well can be effective when you look across whole populations of patients. And so I guess that's what it means for practice is, could you answer questions like these 
from your local databases, your electronic health records? Could you audit your practice and say, how, what percentage of my patients aren't meeting these basic measures? And so that you could put something into place to pick those people up and try and try to implement it. So that's all we've got time for for today. And thank you for listening. All the papers we've discussed today are available as full slide sets that are free for you to access and download at lupus-forum.com. So you can download those and use them in your own journal clubs or your teaching. And if you register for updates on the Lupus Forum, you'll get emails whenever we have new content like this available. You can also follow us on Lupus Forum or One Word on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Thanks again and see you next time.